One thing I forgot to mention to you is that there are these little flyers on the table outside the door. Uh, and if you can't find them, just come and talk to me. But if you want to find out more about CRC, Christ Redeemer Church, and the uh, teaching, preaching, and other things that we do, this would be a helpful little thing. It's got one of those little uh, QR codes on there. Put your phone on it, boom, and all this stuff comes up. But there's information on there as well. Uh, I'd like to draw your attention to Ephesians chapter 2. You can find that on page 976, Ephesians chapter 2, 976 in the Bibles that are provided in the pew. And I would love to begin uh, by reading uh, God's Word. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, page 976, verses 1 through 10. Hear the Word of the Lord. And you were dead... And your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God bless the reading of His Word. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we pray that You would take Your Word, and not only that which has been read, but now as it is uh, going to be explained, explicated and pressed, into our hearts, into our situations, would you by your Holy Spirit manifest the power of it by drawing us to faith in Christ, that we may see Him who is both our Savior as well as the one who did that saving by taking our sin so that we might walk in these good works. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Now, at Christ Redeemer Church, we have been in the process for actually a number of years now, uh, working our way through the Gospel of John. Of course, John's one of the four uh, accounts of the life of Christ. And one of the things, we're getting towards the end of it, but one of the things that struck me about going through John is how much ink uh, John, the Gospel writer, spills, how much ink he spills on the Holy Spirit. 
arguably way more than any of the other gospel writers. But what's super interesting in light of that to me is that though he talks a ton about the Holy Spirit, he never once even mentions the word repentance. Did you ever notice that about the Gospel of John? John never once uses the word repent. He never once uses or mentions the term repentance. I mean, I think that this is astoundingly strange. In other Gospels, in all of the other Gospels, you could argue that repentance is central, very central. Uh, Arguably, it's the main message of, of John the Baptist. The main message of Jesus, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And John doesn't say anything about this. Now, having said that, one of the things that you discover when you're working your way through the Gospel of John, which is very different than the other Gospels, you begin to see that the lack of the word doesn't necessarily mean the absence of the theme. In other words, John so often shows us more than he tells us. In other words, John often comes in through the back door on these central gospel themes, even like the theme of repentance. So actually, the theme of repentance, I would argue, is everywhere in the gospel of John. John 16 tells us of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and all that teaching on the Holy Spirit that you get there, that he brings conviction of sin. Or in John chapter 3, 19 through 21, he talks about those that are coming into the light versus those that are hiding in their sin in the darkness. In John chapter 4, you have a similar sort of uh, showing of the, of the, of the woman coming into the light, the woman at the well coming into the light of her sin. Or John chapter 3 talking about being born again, a completely new life, a restored, a a complete reorientation of life. Or John chapter 9 where you see this idea of this whole new way of seeing that becoming a Christian, becoming a, a follower of Jesus is a whole new way of seeing everything. It's like you're, well, it's just a blind man. That's what John chapter 9 is about. The blind man receiving sight. You see, John is talking and showing us, talking about and showing us repentance. But he's coming in through the back door. He's showing more than he's telling. What does repentance mean? Well, in the other places that we find the word repentance, it uses this Greek word uh, in the Bible, metanoia. Uh, which means, uh, meta meaning to change, like a metamorphosis. Noia coming from the Greek word for mind or, or imagination, uh, even perception, uh, to perceive, to discern, to consider, to imagine. So what repentance is at its heart is a complete, a deep change of heart and mind, of understanding and imagination, of perception about the world. Repentance is an opening of our eyes. An opening, and a lightening of our hearts. As a matter of fact, that's what Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18, if you want to go look at another place, where the opening, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. So that we may see our lives, we may see most fundamentally God in a completely different light. Repentance is at its core an epiphany. It's being struck. It's coming to our senses. It's being awakened to a new reality. It's being cut to the quick. Cut to the heart. A complete new heart perspective. That's what you see in Acts chapter 2. So it's a completely new seeing or experiencing of life in the light 
of the gospel. It's a completely new mindset, a new posture. Rosaria Butterfield, if you're familiar with her writing, she puts it this way. Repentance is not just a conversion exercise. Oh, of course, that is true. We must repent and believe, right? Repentance is not just a conversion exercise, but it's the very uh, demeanor, the very posture, as she puts it, of the Christian. It's a, it's a vision of reality. It's, it's, it's seeing. It's a vision of reality in which we, our imaginations are captivated in such a way that the very core perception of ourselves and our lives, and certainly God, is rearranged. It's a refreshing new perspective. It's actually an opening of the mind. This is so funny to me because so often we think of repent, you know, like this sort of a, sort of a moral lecturing sort of thing. The Bible seems to suggest that it is an opening of the mind. It, it, is, it is a moving from a closed, hard-heartedness to an opening of the mind. You know, the early church captivated the imagination of the ancient pagan world. And how did they do it? Well, in large part, they did it with this gospel of repentance. And I can say to you, if you're a non-Christian, even here this morning, if you might be here investigating the Christian faith, you might even say, well, the thing that really bugs me about the Christians and this Christian message is this idea of repentance, this moral lecturing. But I'd like to suggest to you, it's actually the truth of the matter is, it's the exact opposite. It is the exact opposite. What really bugs you about the church is the church's often pathetic apprehension and application of the doctrine of repentance. Churches that are rich in repentance are the most welcoming churches because true repentance removes our eyes from ourselves and places it on others because it places it on God. It expands our world by making us smaller in it. That's our fundamental problem. Your fundamental problem is you're too big in your world. That's the problem. So it expands our understanding and thus making room for others, most significantly God. And so there's something profound about the idea of repentance. Something deep about the subject of repentance. When you understand repentance, it's captivating and liberating because repentance is about a deep life change that's driven by our by being captivated by a new view of the world, a new view of God, a new view of ourselves. And that's what I'd like to look at from this Ephesians chapter 2 passage to see what actually is it that, that what is this new vision that we see? And in Ephesians chapter 2, I had somebody tell me before the service, oh, Ephesians 2, it's my favorite chapter, my favorite passage. This might be true of you. Because it does such a beautiful job in three little turns of showing this new view of life of God in ourselves. So what does it look like? What is this epiphany? Well, in this we see three things. When you have this epiphany, when, you have, when your imagination is captivated by the reality of repentance, you repent. What do you see? What hits you? Number one, you see the seriousness of sin. Number two, you see the generosity, the radical generosity of grace. And number three, you see the fruitfulness of genuine faith. 
I'll say those again, though they're printed for you on the insert. The seriousness of sin, the generosity of grace, and the fruitfulness of faith. The seriousness of sin. Look what he says here in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Death is the ultimate disability, right? Okay? If you're dead, you can't do anything. I mean, there's nothing worse you could say about somebody than they're dead, okay? They're dead in their trespasses and sin. What is Paul getting at here? A person who comes to the epiphany of repentance sees their radical responsibility and their radical inability. Their deep culpability, it's your sin that has separated you from God. It's a deep ownership. It's admitting that you have a problem. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. He actually goes on and details these crimes. It was a lifestyle, verse 2, in which we walked in the flesh. We lived in the passions of our, of our, of our lusts of our flesh. We were carrying out, we were indulging in the desires of the body. So this death here is a deadness to God. In other words, we don't want to have anything to do with God, we, we, it, but yet it's completely our fault. It's your sins. That's what he's saying. Paul is suggesting here a categorical ownership of the selfishness the sinfulness, the self-centeredness of our hearts, and therefore the necessity of an absolute universal, unilateral surrender. And this is so different than the world in which we live today. I mean, uh, again, you may be a non-Christian here, I don't like this idea of sin. Well, let me suggest to you, nothing's more freeing than understanding this, my friends. Because it's not the relativism that you see in the world. Well, we really shouldn't judge one another. Who's to say what's right and wrong? Where has that got us? It's got us into chaos. And and it's certainly not the blame shifting that we not only see in the world, but we see within our own households, don't we? Pointing the fingers at one another. You know, actually, it's kind of funny. You might, you might, it's actually a, a, a significant political move. This is what all politics seems to be about nowadays. Trying to get dirt on the other person, isn't it? You know, if we can get dirt on the other person, then we look less dirty. But we're still dirty. You see? That hasn't got us anywhere. There's blame shifting. And you might even say, well, well Paul's doing it here. Look, verse 1, you were dead. In which, verse 2, in which you once walked. But notice, very significant. You've got to read these things carefully. When you get to verse 3, Paul then says, among whom we. He goes from you to we. Why is that the case? Because he's writing here to Gentiles, and he says, you as Gentiles once walked in these things. Oh, and by the way, we did too. I'm no better than you, even as a religious Jew, a pharisaical Jew, good conservative, traditionalist person that I was, I likewise was dead in my transgressions and sins, in which I walked in the lust of my flesh. And I myself, like you, was a child of wrath. You see, there's no spin here. There's no, you know, this is what we do. Uh, you know, the, 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 those fights that you get in as husbands and wives, I, you guys probably don't get into these things up here. You're such good people. Um, and, and certainly you didn't get into this fight on the way to church this morning. Uh, that, uh, no, there's no spin, you see. There's a great uh, story. It's one of the most powerful stories of, uh, you could even say, of the 20th century. 
But um, so many of you know that during world, you know, the atrocities of World War II with the Nazi concentration camps and some six million Jews being slaughtered in those concentration camps. Well, uh, some of those uh, perpetrators of that uh, at the end of the chaos of World War II fled and got away. And probably the most famous of those was Adolf Eichmann, who was uh, arguably the architect of the whole thing. And uh, in 1960, they finally found him down hiding away in Argentina. Uh, You guys know this story? They finally found Adolf Eichmann hiding in Argentina. So they, they bring him on trial. They capture him and bring him on trial. And they bring all of these survivors of his atrocities as witnesses to testify against the wickedness. I mean, can you imagine? The wickedness. And one of the guys they bring is a fellow by the name of Yechiel Denur. And Denur was a survivor of the Auschwitz death camp. He had seen his, the guards torture his siblings and molest his brother and brutally brutalize his sister before they died. And Denur is brought in to testify at the Eichmann trial. And uh, in the middle of the trial, in his testimony, he has like this almost epileptic fit where he just collapses. And, and it was just, it was a very dramatic scene. I think you can see it on YouTube. And uh, a few years after that, Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes said, I want to interview this guy. Remember old Mike Wallace? So he interviews Zanur and he, he asked him, I'll quote here, why, why did you collapse and, and cry so violently during this trial? What, you know, was it fear? Was it the terrible memories of the past? Was it your bitter hatred for Eichmann? And Denur said, no. None of those at all. When I saw him, what terrified me was I saw myself. I realized that this man was just an ordinary man like me. And when I looked into his face after all those years, I realized that I am as as capable of this kind of crime. Wallace ends the program by saying, there's an Adolf Eichmann in every one of us. Well put. You see, the point is the deep ownership and conviction of sin. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you walked. And I, just like them, I say it, Paul says it. So repentance here is the gavel coming down. And and the, the court says you are guilty of sin, righteousness, and you are subject to judgment here. You're on trial before God. In this sense, repentance is not trite. It is being cut to the heart where the people on the day of Pentecost say, we just killed the Holy Son of God. What must I do to be saved? What must I do? One writer puts it this way, his fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. The great King David in Psalm 51 
says, against you and you only have I sinned, he says to the Lord. You see, all sin is relative to God. There's no finger pointing. There's no relativizing before the throne, before the bar of justice, of God's justice. It's the fear of the Lord that's in view. That's what's in view. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those that declare bankruptcy before the justice of God. It's, it, uh, it's a blindness. Sin is a blindness. And that's the irony. of it. I talked about the blind man in John chapter 9. The John shows us there. The blind man basically says he sees because he's blind. But those who say they see, they say, I have no sin. They're the blind ones. That's the irony of it. So look, all this to say is you have to see in repentance, you see the seriousness of sin. Not the world sin, all oh, those bad people, oh, oh the world it has gone bad, it's, you know, it's so bad out there. No, it crushes you. You see yourself alone, if you will, naked alone before the justice of God. So it's an epiphany of the reality of your sin before Almighty God, a categorical brokenness. But this is only one aspect of the epiphany. And if this is all you see, you will not see true repentance. Your life will not really change. Because the next thing you've got to see is the generosity of God's grace. And look at what Paul says here. The emphasis here is on the unilateral, absolute nature of God's grace. Look at verse 4. But God, this is common in Paul's writings, but God, those two things often go together after a description of sin. But God, who is God? He's rich in mercy. And what else do we know about him? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, the radical, deep, rich generosity of God's grace. What does God do in light of our sin? He treats us the opposite that you would your spouse. He treats us the opposite you would with your coworker who sinned against you. He treats you opposite as you would with your boss if you feel like your boss has ripped you off in some way. God pours out His grace. Actually, specifically, He says that He makes us alive together with Christ. That's one word in the Greek. Made alive together with, one word, Christ. You have been unioned with Him. Jesus unites Himself to us. He takes all of the deadness of our sin and He gives us all of the life of God. And why does He do it? Not one shred of merit on our part. Not one bit of deservedness. Not one... Uh, uh, even little sense of oh, good intentions, I'm going to do a better job, Jesus, for you from now on. No, but just because of the great love with which he loved us. By grace, you have been saved. Repentance in the gospel sense, and therefore is not merely turning from our sin. Of course, it's turning from our sin. But you see here on the backside of this coin, and, and, very, and this is very important, it's not just a turning from our sin. It's a turning from our self-made sense of righteousness. In other words, being a Christian is not about trying really hard to prove yourself, 
to others, to prove yourself to your to yourself, to prove yourself to God that, oh, you're really gonna, you're a good person or you're really gonna be a good person. That is the definition of pride. And pride is sin. That just makes the knot of sin tighter the more you pull on that. Repentance is a moving toward confronting and killing that deep arrogance within us that says, no, I can save myself. Great C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, repentance means unlearning all of the self-conceit and self-will, that deep arrogance, that we've been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means undergoing a sort of death of that. In other words, repentance forces us not back deeper into ourselves, but out of ourselves completely. From, from any thought of saving ourselves, Onto the mercy of God, which is rich. His mercy is generous. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Being a Christian is the end of trying to prove yourself, period. It's an epiphany of God's good kindness to us, despite of us. We've not done anything. One writer contrasts this with uh, what we might call the religious idea of, of penance. And he, and he says penance, this, penance is not the same thing as, penance is trying to make up for what we've done. Repentance is something completely different. It's being hit by, by the ugliness of sin and the beauty of God's grace in the face of that. So he says this, penance is a religious attitude deeply rooted in the human heart, that is sin, which prompts people to attempt to pay for their own sins by good works and suffering. Self-justification is the goal of this effort. Another writer says that this false type of repentance or penance is selfish, self-righteous, and bitter all the way to the bottom. In the gospel, however, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ. This grace is the secret ingredient that allows us to really change. When you see God's, um, when you see God's incredible kindness to us, it frees us to put ourselves onto the operating table of the great physician and to take his treatment, to take his medicine. And by the way, that's what, that's what he's doing, Christian believer. Uh, and even, might I say, non-believer who the Holy Spirit may be drawing you right now. In other words, he's poking through the circumstances of your life. He's poking at you through your spouse's criticism. He's poking at you through your boss's correction or guidance. He, he's poking at you through your brother or sister in Christ's rebuke. And Jesus is at work through all these things as he's sovereign. He's in charge. And he wants you to welcome you into the fullness of that repentance. But we'll only do this when we know that God will graciously and gladly use all these things for good. In other words, that, that in the gospel, God is totally and absolutely on our side. Not because you deserve it, so therefore you can't lose it. 
But you begin to see God's kindness in everything because this is what the Bible says over and over again. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's his grace. But there's more. <laughs> there's more, my friends. Uh, look, look, look at verses 6 and 7 here. Uh, there's more. It's not mere mercy, but true repentance doesn't leave us groveling before God for mercy. Oh, what a worm is I, and so forth. Uh, but rather, look, at it glorifies us with Christ in the heavenly realms. Look at verse 6. Look with me. Verse 6, and God and he raised us up, see that, with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might shame us and remind us of our sin and failures forever. Right? Wait. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Forgive me, I, I must have the, the devil's translation here. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Yes, you. That's his intention because that magnifies his grace and you get the joy of it. True repentance actually leaves us feeling better, doesn't it? It actually puts us into a complete... In other words, it doesn't leave us writhing in some sorrow of regret, but blown away by God's generosity. Remember how Jesus described the father in, in Luke 15 with the prodigal son. The prodigal son's coming back. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm, he's saying, I'm, I'm really sorry, father. He's rehearsing his little speech to try to get his father, you know, twist his arm so the father will, will do something nice to him. And the father comes running to him, throws a feast. I mean, you know, the story really is not about the prodigal son. It's about the prodigal God, the prodigal father, right? That's what's going on. False repentance keeps us busy trying to feel good about ourselves. And therefore, we totally miss the gospel. Remember, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That's false repentance. This is really important point because I find that for a lot of us, uh, maybe especially us as Christians, we confuse all of the talk of sin and God's judgment with an end game of self-deprecation. God, you know, we're like, oh, you know, and God's crowning us with glory. He's lifting us up to the very throne of heaven with Christ. I know this is crazy. I mean, it would be blasphemy had he not said it. I wouldn't, I could never stand here and say such things. But this is what he's promised. You see, not, nothing can be further from the truth that it's leading us to, to greater sorrow. Wherever the biblical doctrine of repentance has gone, the end game is always joy and liberty. The elevation of the human soul. The redemption that comes from repentance restores us to our original design as, as image bearers of God ruling over creation. I mean, look at Acts chapter 2, one of the places you probably find this most beautiful picture of repentance. You know, what must I do? What must we do? They say, he says, you know, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And it describes the church. And what does it say about the church? You find them in genuine, joyful community. You find them with glad and generous hearts. You find them praising, rejoicing, praising God and attracting their non-believing neighbors to Christ. Actually, in the Gospel of John, in, in, in uh, John chapter 4, with the woman at the well, 
she becomes this most infectious, like, like this, this most infectious witness to the gospel. I mean, it's so funny. All the Samaritans go from not wanting to be with her. That's why she's out there all by herself in the middle of the day. All the Samaritans go from not wanting to be with her to everyone wanting to be like her. I want what she's got. Or in, in, uh, in John chapter 9 with the blind man, the blind man goes from this guy who's, being, who's a beggar trampled by other people to, to boldly taking on the most elite people in his community. Remember what he says to the, to, the, to the religious leaders? You keep asking me these questions. Oh, do you want to be a disciple too? I mean, what sort of bold statement is that he's going to give back to these guys? Well, we don't, we don't want to be a disciple, you know. He's bold. He's not groveling in the dust anymore. You see, the gospel restores the center of gravity of our souls that we're, so that we're not so easily knocked off by accusations and shame, my friends. There's a great Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer of the 1500s, is one of my favorite. And one of the favorite things that I've ever read from him that he wrote was a letter in 1530 that he wrote to a friend of his, Jerome Weller, or Veller, as they would say, who was a pastor, young pastor, about 31 years old at the time, who was struggling with depression. Uh, he had previously lived in Luther's home. Luther had a big house because he took over the Augustinian monastery there in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, and welcomed, you know, had dozens of people living with him at any time and feeding them and training them to send them out. Well, Jerome Valor was one of them. And uh, he's struggling with depression, and he writes Luther saying, help. You ever just get depressed? You ever just get weary? You ever just feel spiritually exhausted? Do you ever just feel like a failure of a Christian? Okay, I guess it's just me. <laughs> All right? I know that's not true. So he writes, he writes Luther, and Luther says, writes back, he says, When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. Devil, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? What of it? For I have a Savior who has made me His own. And where He is, there I will be also. I have been unioned with Him. I have nothing to fear. You see the boldness of that? He owns the death and hell. But He owns Jesus. God showers His grace on us for all eternity. He makes us trophies of His delight. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. He says, Though repentance be a deep sorrow for sin, yet the very nature of it necessarily implies delight. Repentance of sin is a sorrow arising from the sight of God's excellency and mercy. Let me say that again. That's a really good line. It's a sorrow, in the context, over my sin, but it's arising from the sight of God's wonder the wonder of who he is and his mercy towards me. 
In other words, it melts my heart, is what he says. He says it's impossible to be affected with the mercy and love of God and his willingness, his delight to be merciful to us and to love us and not be affected with the pleasure at the thoughts of it. It's, it, he says, this very affection is at the heart of repentance. The generosity of God's grace. So we've seen the seriousness of sin, the generosity of God's grace. Now we need to end here with the fruitfulness of faith. Now in verses 8 and 9, I think you have something of a, of a, of a theological summary statement of everything he said. He actually repeats a piece of what he said back uh, earlier in verse 6. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one shall boast. And then he goes in talking, well, if it's not about works, what, a, what about the fruitfulness of faith? What about works? Well, he explains here. He says, we are his workmanship. We are God's own crafty work, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, genuine repentance when we see the seriousness of sin and we see the generosity of grace, it can't help but produce in us the fruitfulness of faith. Because it is the work of God. It's the joy within us. Good works don't lead to grace, but grace leads to good works. This is what you see over and over again. So in John 15, for example, abide in me as the branch can't bear fruit of itself. He goes on to say, abide in my love. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. How do we bear fruit? We abide in the generosity of his love against the backdrop of the seriousness of our sin. This is why, if I can go back to Martin Luther, he says, what a living, creative, and active, powerful thing is faith. It is impossible that faith ever stop doing good. Faith doesn't ask whether good works are to be done, but before it is asked, it has done them. It's always active. Why is that the case? Well, why don't we do good works? I'll tell you why we don't do good works. We're too busy trying to save ourselves. We're too busy turned, curved in on ourselves. But repentance, born of God's radical grace, woos us out of ourselves, lets ourselves go, so that we then can get on that path that Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. Gladly let that lockdown life that I live, that belly button, navel-gazing life, get it out. Deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus is my treasure. You lose your life to Jesus' safekeeping. You see, my friends, your heart was made for joy. Your, 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 it was made for love. Your lips were made to praise God and to encourage others. Your brain neurons were made to fire uh, on the beauty and the excellency of God and, and to be overwhelmed with his love and to be uh, going out in loving thoughts towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. But because of sin, that is that self-importance, uh, that self-righteousness that locks us down in ourselves. Because of sin in our hearts, our hearts, our lips, our neurons are locked down in a very narrow world. But what the gospel of grace does, the gospel of repentance does, it unlocks us. And it liberates us from that locked down self. And why does it do that? Because of the radical nature of God's grace. 
Again, if I could quote from Luther, he says that this faith is an unshakable confidence in God's grace. This kind of trust in and knowledge of God's grace makes a person joyful, confident, happy with regard to all God's creatures. It's willing to suffer anything in order to serve others. You may be thinking, but look, but my life's such a mess. I, I, I need to be fixed first before I can have such faith. My friends, this, this path of faith that does the fixing. This very fixation on fixing yourself is nothing but a self-fixation. And so what, what does the gospel call us to? What does the gospel call us to as we end here? Well, if you're, if you're a non-believer, well, this is true for all of us here, but I'm going to speak specifically to non-believers. It calls us to look at our sin. We've got to see the seriousness of our sin. It calls us to to. Look at the love of our Savior for us. And then to look at our lives in light of all of that. To have that epiphany, that vision. And to know that in all of the messed up stuff that is in our lives, those things don't disqualify us from God's grace. As Spurgeon put it this way, your qualification is your lack of qualification. As as Paul puts it in Romans, Romans 5... For while we were still helpless, for while we were still weak, in verse 8 he says, why we were still sinners, why we were still helpless, why we were still weak. In verse 9 he says, why we were still enemies, why we were still helpless, why we were still weak. Christ died for those that deserved it. No, he died for the ungodly. That's us. He died for the helpless, the weak. My friends, this is the posture of the Christian. This is the posture of repentance. This is the pathway. Remember I said that repentance is not just this one little conversion exercise, but it's the very posture of the Christian. This is the story of sin, grace, and fruitful faith that the Christian person is walking in and narrating that story to their soul. As, as I'm doing it here to you, and you should do it to one another, all of the time. And it's that which gives us vision. Maybe there's somebody here who's never, as Eric said earlier, never put their faith in Christ for the first time. You've never trusted in Jesus. You've never cried out to him. The door is wide open. You say, I'm a sinner. You're qualified. You say, my my heart is weak while we were still helpless. You see? You can't beat this gospel because this gospel will, will beat your sin. There's nothing that it can't stop. This light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't stop it. It's for you. For all who will come. For all who will believe. Let's pray. Father, I pray that... Uh, you would take these words of mine here this morning and certainly the words of your scriptures and would you use them in a way that uh, my preaching and my preparation can't accomplish Uh, for these things are spirit and life. Um, We're dead in our trespasses and sins but you make us alive and so would you Would you do that this morning? I pray for those who may have never 
put their trust in, in him. And I pray, Lord, if they, they would seek someone out for help, if they need help in understanding that. And, Lord, if they feel like they have done that, that all the more they would seek somebody out so that they might learn to walk in that and they might know the fullness of that joy. And, Father, I pray for those of us who know that, that we would all the more walk in the fruitfulness of that. Uh, for we know what, powerful, what a powerful thing your grace is in our lives to transform us and to bear fruit. Uh, for apart from you, we can do nothing. And it's in Christ's name and the great love with which he loved us that we pray. Amen.